Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Ransville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that rebuilt itself literally after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester city centre in 1996. And we found ourselves in the middle of a different type of crisis now with the spread of coronavirus. These conversations were recorded a few months ago, but every single one demonstrates that we rebuilt this city once and we will build it again. We love Manchester and we know it thrives because of the people that come together day in, day out. People like my guest, Clint Boone. Let's make your little bit of the world a bit better, you know what I mean? Make your corner of the world better than it was when you arrived here. And I think if everybody did that, the world would be magnificent. There won't be many Mancunians born, bred or adopted who won't be familiar with Clint's. The organ-playing Mancunian music icon from Inspiral Carpets. And he's also a proud dad, radio presenter and DJ, founder of Boone Army and a committed charity fundraiser. We're also very honoured that Clint has put together a special We Built the City Spotify playlist which consists of his favourite anthems from homegrown Manchester bands. We shared the link in the episode note, so we hope you'll be able to have some proper Mancunian kitchen discos in the next few weeks. Hiya, Clint. Thanks for coming along today to take part in our podcast, We Built This City. You're welcome, Lisa. Nice to see you. Thanks so much. I mean, you were one of the people that spoke first to me about podcasts a couple of years ago and said we should start doing those. So to be honest with you, you've been our inspiration behind We Built This City um, and delighted that you're one of our first guests. So you've interviewed some uh, legendary Mancunians, Tony Wilson, Rich Dashcroft, Bears, Terry Christian. What for you makes um, a great interview? I think what I've always found is the more conversational you can keep it, the better. And don't be scared of letting the guest go down on a tangent if you want to start talking about the pet dog or the Volkswagen Beetle or whatever. Uh, I've always encouraged that sort of thing. And, yeah, you know, as an as a interviewer, don't be worried about going off script. Don't feel like you have to stick to your 20 questions that you've written in that order, you know what I'm saying? It's just uh, I've always found freestyling the interviews is quite a good way of doing it. Just have some bullet points, things you want to discuss. Mm-hmm. I try to make mine very conversational, very relaxed, and, you know, I'm not scared of sounding like an inexperienced broadcaster. You know, I've still got an Oldham accent that I can't shake. So I think it's just relax, be yourself, and get what you can out of your guests. You know, that's the way I've always done it. And I think because I'm a musician and I've got something of a history, when I'm interviewing somebody like Paul Weller, he understands that. So we've always had... Like, my best interviews have been with Paul Weller. I've I've interviewed him more than any other artist over the last... 15 years, um, and I get things out of him that nobody else can get out of him because he knows that I'm a fellow musician and we've got, you know, common mutual friends, if you like, and it's just a really unguarded into that I can get out of people like Weller or Ashcroft. So um, that's what I like to hear, you know, as, as a, a listener, a relaxed conversation rather than an interview, you know, in that like Yeah. And who would you say is the most memorable person that you've interviewed? Is that too difficult to give one? I think in terms of rock and roll, it's got to be people like Weller, Ashcroft, you know, the people that to me are icons, but I've got to know them, you know, through my work as a musician and a broadcaster. So they're still my favourites, and, you know, they're the ones that get excited about, you know, toddling off again with my little recorder to meet, you know, Liam Gallagher or yeah. whatever. But the memorable ones to me, <clears throat> not even music-based um, interviews, you know, mainly because of the Excess Manchester, the Humans of Excess Manchester podcast, to get to sit in a room with Ellen Pankhurst, who's the great-great-granddaughter of Emmeline. You know, she, she's 
direct blood relative of this yeah. this woman who's um, work, you know, monumental, not just in terms of Manchester or Britain, in the world. You know, what Emmeline Pankhurst and a, a gang did was just incredible for, for humanity. So to get to sit with a direct descendant who's still got the same surname and she's still doing the same work. You know, Ellen Pankhurst is still doing what Emmeline did. She's breaking down barriers and she's creating awareness. So to, to be in a room with somebody like that, you're just thinking like, God, I'm not, not worthy of this, really. <laughs> I mean, so that's memorable for that reason. And then... Uh, I think Adam Lawler, a young lad called Adam Lawler that I've become friendly with over the last uh, couple of years, and he was um, a survivor of the arena attack. And I've got to know him, again, through my working radio. He came on as a guest on, on my show on XS Manchester, and we've become good friends since, and I've done an interview with him. And to meet somebody like that, I was 15 when he was um, caught up in the blast. I mean, his best friend died on the spot. And to see that character, 15, he's 17 now, he's like just, uh, he's just the most mature person I've ever met in terms of what he's been through and yeah. where he's at in life, you know. So that's that 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 sort of into you know Pankhurst and Adam Lawler that'll stick with me forever and ever, you know. Yeah. Uh, for reasons outside of music and entertainment, you know. You're an amazing storyteller. I power walk down the canal at Sale um, every you. Saturday and Sunday, <laughs> listening to. I mean, I listen to all the the, uh, the Storytime podcast with like yeah. tears streaming down my face and um, people looking at me and wondering what I was doing. But you have a real ability to kind of capture a moment. Which do you think out of that series was some of your kind of favourite stories? I always liked the one about my dad doing a runner from a restaurant. And this was in the like late 60s, early 70s probably. And we lived in a corner shop in Hayside, just outside Oldham. And my dad was always very law-abiding, you know, fine working-class man. But one night it was out in... Uh, up on the hills, the Black Lad, I think it's called, just above Shaw, this pub stroke restaurant, and they're having a meal, him and half a dozen other guys. And towards the end of the meal, he realised that all his mates were getting off to the toilet and not coming back to the point where eventually it was the only one left and he didn't have enough money to pay for everybody else. He had his own £3 or whatever. And um, <clears throat> he thought, I've got to get out of here. And this was before credit cards. He couldn't just sell pay <laughs> on the card and get the money off the lads later. So he thought, I've got to get out. And uh, he stood up and pretended to be going to the toilet and then legged it towards the door and the, the waiter grabbed him. And while the waiter was holding him and shouting out orders to the other the management, like, you call the police, you come here and help me. While well, this guy was gesticulating and pointing, my dad broke free and ran out. And the black lad is on this massive hill, probably about two miles straight across fields and a railway line to where we lived in the corner shop. And he just ran in the darkness through this mud. I think it was snowing at the time as well. It was like winter. And he just ran around and came home, eventually came home, covered in mud and wet through and snow and everything. And my mum's like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, I had to do a runner, I had to do a runner. And I tell that story in the story time in Boom Podcast, but for me, that's one of my favourites. And the other one was the, um, the the Scarecrow and the Snake one, which was recently, a couple of years ago. We were, uh, it was a nice summer evening and uh, we were pottering around in the Boom Garden. Which sounds really glamorous, doesn't it? It's not that massive. <laughs> but we've got a little bit where we grow veggies and that, and we've got a scarecrow in there that we, we bought from some garden centre. And we're pottering about early evening, and the sun was still, you know, setting. It was just really nice. And we spotted my wife, Charlie, just shouted, Clint, Clint, quick, come here, there's a snake. And I came running over to the, um, the uh, like, the, the shrub patch, whatever you call it, and sure enough, there's snake skin. No snake, but there's all this snake skin where, where a snake had shed its skin. So I'm like, all right, kids, get the kids inside, shut the windows. 
get the local police ready on the phone because I've got the we've got the local police number because we phone it that often. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we've got the local police number in our phones. And I said, right, get get ready to phone the police because we might need to get some help here if it, if it you know if it's as big as this snake looks like by its skin that is shedded. So we've got all this drama going on like that and looking around for the snake. The kids are all in the house locked in, looking up against the windows like that. Where's the snake? Dad, have you found the snake? <laughs> anyway, then we realised that the scarecrow had got this, like, uh, a waistcoat on. It was like a snakeskin fabric. And because we'd had really bad weather in the last few days, it shredded. And all this snakeskin effect stuff was on the, the garden. And we thought we'd got a snake. But, again, just... Um, that's the kind of story that I like to tell on my podcast. Exciting. And that like to really excite people and, and inspire them to subscribe or they'll just go and check something else out <laughs> yeah. by Joe Rogan or whatever. <laughs> I like the story. So in terms of um, your music career, um, it's been extremely prolific and you've been a musician, songwriter, DJ, radio presenter. Have you enjoyed <clears> one of those roles more than another in particular? I think I've enjoyed them all. At, you know, they've all had the same sort of highs, at some point, you know, being in a band, obviously, writing songs and singing those songs around the world and the money that comes with that as well, if you get it right. Uh, but then being a radio presenter, as I mentioned, some of the names that I've got to interview that I wouldn't have met otherwise. I would never have met Ellen Pankhurst to have a conversation with. So as a broadcaster, I've had some amazing eyes. And then as a club DJ, again, it's just euphoric, you know, like two or three times a week when I'm out in the clubs or wherever DJing. So I find that, they tick a lot of the same boxes as somebody who grew up wanting to be a, you know, a pop star or an entertainer, whatever you want to call it. Even now that I'm not in a, an active band, I still feel that that part of my ego that wants adoring, it still gets ticked off, you know, whether it's on the radio or in a club. People said to me, do you miss being in a band? And I sort of do, but I still get the, um, I still get the buzz mm. through the other work that I do. Even podcasting is like, you know, you... you you might spend a week putting that podcast together and nobody in the world knows about it. And then, yeah. you know, it might drop on a Monday. And by Monday afternoon, people are, you know, sending these amazing reactions from around the world. Again, as, a, as somebody that wants to entertain, you know, I've always been that sort of person. So, yeah, it ticks a lot of boxes. And I've had equal amounts of eyes through every aspect of my career, really. Uh, having said that, I do I do sort of wish that my, my, my life and my career was geared around getting up in the morning and making music, mm. making records, writing songs. Definitely. And did you, <clears> can you remember like, the point at which you just wanted to be a musician or create? Was there a kind of a certain moment in time or a certain age? First time I saw Elvis Presley on the telly, probably. And it'd be, that'd be about 1967, 68. I'd be seven or eight year old. So I'd always liked music. You know, I think of all my memories of being a kid, one of my strongest is my mum and dad's records being played in the house. And because it was the, you know, that, that was the mid-60s. I, I was born in 59, so by 1966, I was six-year-old, seven-year-old, so I was very aware of the records my mum and dad were playing. And because in those days, people didn't have a 1,000 records in the collection. You had, like, you know, a, a working-class couple like my mum and dad. They might have had 20 albums, you know what I mean? So you'd get to hear the same records a lot, and it's quite a diverse collection. You know, so you'd have musicals like uh, Porgy and Bess and Carmen, and then you'd have a Shirley Bassey album. So I, from an early age, I got a really diverse taste in music. And uh, back then you'd see, you know, you'd see the Rolling Stones on telly occasionally or Tom Jones or whatever. But I think seeing Elvis was the one that really hit me hard, you know, from being seven, eight, nine-year-olds almost just Elvis was like just this incredible image in my head, you know, not just the way it looked, the way he sounded and the way he spoke. So by 
10 or 11, when I first started my own record collection, it was it started with Elvis, really. My first album was an Elvis album, which I still got. And it was from Woolworths, uh, and it's called You'll, ne You'll Never Walk Alone. It's a compilation of Elvis's gospel songs. And uh, I've still got it. In fact, I've got like four or five copies, because whenever I see it in a junk shop and I buy it, I buy another copy <laughs> of it. Just to be sure you've got Yeah, but I've forgotten now which is my original one. <laughs> I've got more mixed up. Anyway, so... But yeah, Elvis was the one really from from an early age, and that went on right to the present day. You know, I've got a big picture of Elvis in my studio where I make my music at home. I've had this big, massive picture of him for I've probably had it for thirty years now, and it's just in front of me when I'm working. Um, so yeah, Elvis was the one that turned everything around for me and made me think that's what I want to do. I didn't do anything about it. I didn't start learning, you know, an instrument or anything. I just assumed that I might be able to do that one day. I had a lovely moment recently. I've talked about this quite a lot in the last couple of months to the point where I'm boring myself talking about it, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. <laughs> in fact, this might be the last time I tell it, but um, there's a new artist that I love called Sam Fender. He's from Newcastle, 23-year-old, singer-songwriter. He's got the thick northeast accent. Writes very much in the style of Bruce Springsteen. That's one of his, his heroes. So I'd heard his singles on the radio, and they're all amazing. And I got the album, and I waited till a Sunday. I've got a really nice... Um, like hi-fi system with a vinyl player, and I thought, I'm going to wait till it's a Sunday afternoon, I've got an hour or so to listen to it. And I sat down and put the album on, and it's got Gatefold Sleeve with all the lyrics in it. And I sat and listened to the entire thing from start to finish, reading the lyrics to myself as I went along. And it's like by, by track two, I was like, I was in tears at the, the, the strength of the writing and the yeah. story. And I wasn't even drunk, this was Sunday afternoon, I'm not even started drinking, because <laughs> I start four o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. <laughs> that's a lie but it's just the power yeah. not only of listening to the sonic experiences amazing music but reading the kids story as well yeah and that's something that i think in the world of you know like the the mp3 or the streaming very a lot of the time the kids aren't even thinking about the lyrics or studying the lyrics or trying to equate to the lyrics and it's just a beautiful way of listening to music so i keep saying to people get the sam fender album sit down read the words as he's singing it mm. it's so powerful yeah. And it's just, it's one of my best records ever. One of my favourite records of all time, I'll do you know that. what I mean? I'll do that. I think the whole thing with the album as well is that you consumed that album, didn't you, for, so you you'd kind of, it was in your DNA. Yeah. And you knew, knew what was coming next. And I know Aztec Camera did a tour a couple of years ago I went to, and they, they did um, the album from start to finish and then, re and then on the other side as well. And that was like the whole experience. You knew what was going to come next. Yeah. So you, it was part of your life for that period of time. Absolutely. Music yeah. doesn't feel like that now. It, it, it's weird, isn't it? It's like my kids, my younger kids, I've got two older kids who are in their 20s and they've flown the nest and they're on, out there doing great things. But my, my three younger ones that are still at home with us, three little boys, 9, 13 and 15. And um, the, the younger ones are now listening to, and this has only come in the last couple of weeks, this has started, mm -hmm. but they're listening to this genre, which I think is still called bedroom pop, which sounds like a really naff term, you know what I mean? It sounds like it's going to be shallow and cack and all that, but... My 13-year-old went to see a guy called Cave Town recently. He was really big on this. He's like a YouTuber yeah. making music. He's got millions of followers. So Hector went to Leeds to watch Cave Town do a gig and some of his friends. So I've heard about Cave Town, but I've not read up on it, not listened to it. And then the other day they were listening to something on their earphones and I said, just put it in, into the car speaker. So I've listened to this bedroom pop in mm. inverted commas. So it's like younger people, most of them are like still 14, 15, 16 year old making these songs in the bedrooms. Mm on laptops with this this software you get these days, yeah. you can just make radio quality music in your bedroom and the quality of what they're writing is just phenomenal really. 
because it's from the art and it's yeah. it's it's real and they're not trying to pander to a, a mass market. And I was seriously listening to this stuff and thinking, this is better than, than what I'm listening to on pop radio. Yeah. And a lot of the multimillionaire, you know, household name writers are not writing stuff as good as this mm. because they've they moved into a different um, different world, really, where it's not about, you know, like where, I love Ed Sheeran. I've met him a couple of times. I love the, the writing he did at the beginning. I absolutely adored it. I thought it was just gorgeous writing. Yeah. But what Ed's writing now is like, to me, is he's changed his aiming at a different market completely. But I think it's about music connecting, isn't it, with, the, with a certain age group? Yeah. And um, like you say, bedroom pop. I mean, Billie Eilish, classic kind of example Absolutely. of that. Absolutely, well, she's that, the she icon of it, did yeah. it in the bedroom, didn't she? Yeah. And um, produced that with the brother on software. Um, you know, as I say, my daughter sings. She She's written songs about the stuff that she was going through at school, which was really, yeah. really heart, heartbreaking. I listen to some of that stuff and it makes me want to cry. And that's, yeah. it's about connecting, isn't it, with your audience and it not being produced for, I suppose, mass market. And that's Absolutely, what's useful yeah. about and it. And it's, the, you know, I think a lot of what I say, and I'll probably say it several times in this interview, is like, just follow your soul and do what this is telling you. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of the time, rather than, I know when you get to our age, you've got to think about where your money's yeah. coming from, but... I think as a creative, I've always found that if you follow your soul and write about what you want to write about in your way, mm-hmm. and if you get it right, you write a song like this is how it feels, and mm-hmm. that wasn't yeah. meant. It wasn't meant to make any money, but here we are, thirty years later, it's still making money for a lot of people, and a lot of people are still singing it. But it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a song that I wrote with money in mind. You know what I mean? It was a song written about one of the lowest things I've ever felt in my life, and yeah. that's what where it came from. And you know. These days, it's a celebratory tourist anthem, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Amongst other things, and a, and a club classic. Yeah, and I wrote really it because I was yeah. absolutely gutted about something that I'd done, you yes. know what I mean? So, talking about following your soul, where's your soul taking you now? It's funny, you caught me at a real transitional time, and it's, that, it's scary and it's exciting at the same time. So, basically, I've been in full-time radio for 15 or 16 years. I think 2004 I started... I accidentally became a radio presenter. Before that, I dabbled with radio, and people had said, will you come and stand in for me on Century? Terry Christian used to say, do my show, I'm going on holiday. So <laughs> I did bits of radio because I was a musician who wasn't scared of a microphone. I started getting offered little radio gigs, and then I accidentally became a full-time presenter in 2004, thanks to XFM coming to Manchester. So I did, uh, I did a year at the Revolution and then went straight to XFM. I was there for 12 years. XFM became Radio X. I did another year there alongside some work with the BBC, and then XS Manchester came along. So now we're at a stage where XS is about to shut down and become something else which won't involve me because it's going to become a, an urban music station. I don't mind urban music, but I think the idea of a 60-year-old bloke, you know, <laughs> introducing the latest grime track from somebody <laughs> from Cheetah Mill, it's not going to work, really, I don't think. But um, So, yeah, I'm at a position where I love what I've done at XS. It's yeah. been three years of, you know, magical stuff in my life. But by the end of March, I mean, we're in January now, by the end of March, that, that stops and that, that income stops. And it's, it's not a massive wage, but it's quite a um, substantial amount of money for the family. Mm. So I've got to look now at what I'm doing next. And I'm just excited about the, the opportunity now to get back into making more music, doing more co-writing, because this is something that I've been frustrated about for years. I've not had time to... Every time I talk to Paul Weller, he's like, when are me and you going to do some work together? When are we going to make some music together? And because, how ridiculous is it? I'm so busy with radio that I can't jump on a train to London and work with Weller. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. For, for, for somebody who's spent the last 55 years wanting to be a musician yeah. and one of my idols wants to make some music with me. 
And have your children kind of followed in your musical footsteps or the kind of creative footsteps? Uh, the two older ones, my, my eldest is Arlie, my daughter. She's um, into fashion. She's got her own fashion line called The Wild. But she loves music and uh, her fashion brand is very much based around the ethos of rock and roll. So she's busy developing that and really, you know, 100% passionate about its direction. So that's Harley. She's doing well. Max is my eldest boy. He's um, fluent in Spanish. So he's really into travel. He's really into art. He's doing a lot of work with a, an art-based um, company that his girlfriend's uh, family runs. So he's, he's, he's into travel, language and art. And I don't know where he's going to go, but maybe not music. He loves music, yeah. but I don't think he's going to make music as such. Our 15-year-old boy, Oscar, is uh, starting at the Manchester College next year doing music performance. And he's like an incredible musician. He's like playing bass guitar. That's his main instrument. So Oscar definitely is focused on music. And then the other two, Hector's 13, Cassie's 9. Again, they both love music. They both dance around the house constantly. So I'm hoping that they'll follow in Oscar's steps and my steps and you know, get into music at some point or entertainment. I'll, Cassie's nine, and I always said to him, like, he's just one of the greatest dancers. He's like, he's got his beautiful frame. He's tall, he's thin, he's got blonde hair down to his ass. And he's just like, he's just like, he's like, if you could, if you, I just always say he's a sunshine child. It's yeah. like the sunshine, the sun in a child's body, the, the way he's his spirit, the way he moves. But every time I said to him about, let's go and have some dancing lessons, he's like, nah. Anything that sounds like traditional education to Cass, yeah. he's like, nah, I don't know that. But he just dances. He can't walk down the road without dancing. So lovely. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that all three of the younger ones will end up in music. Oscar's on his way already. He's already in a band, Oscar. And I've always been interested. You, you uh, took a decision a long time ago to homeschool the kids, didn't you? So yeah. The whole ethos of it is gearing the kids' activities and their education around what they're into. I think it's just building those skills, in, isn't it? And kind of roots and wings, isn't it? And yeah. once you've got those, that set of skills, and they can use those in lots of different um, yeah. directions, which is amazing. And having the confidence as well to step out into the world, and which I see in Cass, because, you know, I, I'm, it's a scary world, and it's getting scarier. I'm not hoping to sound too down there, but you just see every day that who would have ever thought that in Manchester we'd be worried about terrorism? Mm. You know, but 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been on, on, on our spectrum, would it? No. Generally. But, I mean, I'm talking about the kind of terrorism that we're, we're having these days. But now it's on our doorstep. Mm. Mm. So you, you, when you've got kids, you're thinking about that and you're thinking, I don't want to raise a child that's scared of going out. We Built This City, a podcast about the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. I set Roland Dransfield up one month after the IRA bomb, mm. which thankfully nobody was, was hurting. And, and our business since then has been very much involved in helping to build the city, hence we built the city. Obviously, we haven't done it. We've worked with amazing people who have done that. Mm. Do you remember um, the IRA, the day of the IRA bomb, what you were doing? Yeah, I remember it well. I couldn't tell you the date, but I can remember it well because I was living in Milnrow at the time. And there's a few things that were going on. So one thing was the Inspirals had split up amicably in spring of 95. And if I remember rightly, in 96, Mute Records, who were our record label, released a compilation of um, our singles, greatest hits, whatever. And we were no longer working with the label, so they put this album out. And I think they reissued a single called Joe. So that was out in the world, you know, and we weren't really actively involved in promoting it, but... I knew that it was being shown on the uh, chart show that Saturday. And the other thing was that we'd had a TV advert 
that was out at the time for the first ever in-car CD player. So Sony had made this TV advert. They were using one of our songs, I Want You, as part of the TV ad. So I was going into Manchester to get a load of free clothes off my mate, Carl. He worked for a company called, I think they were called Cottonworks at the time. And they had an office on Oldham Street. And he said, come down, I'll give you some gear. Come down on Saturday afternoon, whatever. So knowing that we were going to be on the chart show and that our, our TV advert was on and it was like, I got my VHS player, a video recorder, and I put a three-hour tape in it and left it recording, knowing that we'd be on the chart show and the, uh, the TV advert at some point. And I set off into Manchester and I was driving down. I remember it well because it was a nice day from what I can remember. It was definitely dry, bright. But as I came through Miles Platin, I realised that there's loads of people by the side of the road walking away from the city and I thought, there's been a, an event on like a carnival or something and they're walking away from it. That's what it looked like. Something had just finished and everybody's walking away. And I was driving and, just, and then I realised that nobody was smiling. Everybody walking away from the city and there was a lot of people. Like I said, imagine after a carnival's passing, we're all on our way back. They're walking away from the city but nobody was smiling. I thought, that's weird. And then I realised there was a lot of smoke over the city. And then as I got nearer the Daily Express building, all that realised that the roads were cordoned off. And I just thought I'd got to get to Carl because he's got a load of free clothes that I want. <laughs> I didn't realise that there was anything so serious. tragic that had happened. I just thought something's gone on, but I'll go and see Carl anyway. So I parked my car somewhere. I can't remember, somewhere in that northern quarter part of town, I got rid of my car. And I'm walking past these ro uh, roadblocks and a lot more shocked-looking people. And I found Carl in his office waiting for me, and there was like, a few windows nearby that had gone through and that. And he sat there like, you're all right, Clint, come for your gear. I'm like, yeah. He said, what's going on? He says, been an explosion or something. Uh, anyway, there's your gear. <laughs> so I got my anorak and my, my shirts and all that. But I didn't realise what had happened until I got back home and um, drove out of town. Because I didn't go into the city any further than, uh, I think it might have been Hilton Street we were on, just off Oldham Street. Got back home and by then I heard the news about what had happened. So when I eventually put my VHS tape on, there was the Inspirals on the chart show with Joe, whatever song about an homeless man, and then the uh, TV advert, Sony, CD player, I Want You in Spirals. And then soon after, the news flashes started coming up about the bomb on the on the tape. Like you said, thankfully, nobody was yeah. killed. I think some people were injured, yeah. weren't they? But, and a lot of trauma for the city. Yeah, it's funny how when things like that happen, I think in any city, people pull together. You know, In any community, people would pull together. But... It's hard for me to be objective and say, does Manchester deal with it any differently in, in a situation like that? Um, I feel that Manchester's such a warm community of people that, yeah, we, we do help each other out at times like that. And back then it wasn't as, as necessary to pull together the, the way we did have to do Absolutely. after the arena thing because yeah. that was a lot of people needed a lot of help. Thirty years since Manchester. Obviously, you've talked about your, your career then and, and starting in Spirals. Did you? Was there a rivalry at that time between the bands? Because obviously, Manchester is a very close community. Was that different with the bands, or did you all stick together? My genuine memories of it is not rivalry, because we're all massive fans of each other. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If anything, like I, I always I tell this story about when I used to go watching the Happy Mondays. So around 88, 89, 90, 91. Whenever I'd go watching the Mondays, I'd come away just wanting to throw the towel in and not be in a band. Mm. Because even though the Inspirals were thriving and doing amazing gigs, what I saw with the Happy Mondays was a, a completely different kind of energy. Mm. Like it was a complete party on stage. It was these, these scallies from Little Ulton just having a party. And, you know, just... 
And it always made me feel a bit like, should maybe jack it in. Which is a weird feeling, isn't it? And then by it took me like two days to get over it, and I'd be thinking, no, we are good in a different way. Yeah. So I, I love the Happy Mondays. I love the Roses from day one. I love James. You know, James helped us out a lot in the early days. So I always had a lot of love for these other bands. I think you might have had a bit of healthy competitiveness, you know what I mean? Like when we first heard Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses, we, we were driving south and people carry, we were going doing a gig, and it came on. I think it might be Simon Bates or somebody that got the world exclusive on it. And we listened to it and we're all just like shell-shocked about everything's changed with that record. Now things have changed, you know, the sound, the funky drummer beat. We never heard that, not on an indie record. So you, you always had that cross, like influencing each other in a funny sort of way. You know, they influenced us. If it hadn't been for Fool's Gold, I don't think we'd have done Caravan with a funky drummer beat. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, if it wasn't for some of the things we did, like for an indie band to make a record like This Is How It Feels at that time, wasn't the done thing. Everybody's into partying and songs about I want to be adored and all I am, yeah. I am this, I am that. But this is a song about I'm got here, I'm on my ass. Mm. And it was like that inspired other people to do similar songs to me. So we all inspired each other in different ways. We all helped each other a lot, uh, as I see it. You'd get the occasional conflict that happened. There was one between me and Sean Ryder in particular that was just... John Robb did a piece for Sounds um, about the Mondays and how brilliant they were. And knowing that I was a fan, he called me up and he said, you fancy giving us a few words about what you think of the Mondays? I'm like, I love them. And I give this adoring few minutes of how much I love them, why, why I love them. And the piece that they quoted in the Sounds, I think it was Sounds, not Melody Maker, they put uh, like a, a sentence in bold, and I can't even remember what it was, but it's something about the Mondays being the spirit of the street and this, that and the other. And Sean, who, Sean Ryder at the time, and he'll tell you this himself, wasn't in a great place in every respect, apart from he was selling a lot of records, but he interpreted it completely different way, the wrong way. Uh, and I think at the same time, I think somebody else out the Inspirals had called him a, a knobhead or something in another interview. So he, he took a real, for a few weeks, he wanted to kill me, I think. And luckily I was out of town when he was, he turned up at GMEX at a gig. He won't remember that, but that wasn't to do with rivalry or um, it was to do with his state of mind at the time and his misinterpretation of things that I'd said because I was being very complimentary. Subsequently, me and Sean got on better than ever and to this day we're still quite close. Um, I helped him out a lot when he was on his arse in the, uh, what year would it be, early 2000s when he had no money. He wasn't allowed to earn any money because of a legal issue and uh, I helped him to get out into the uh, the DJ circuit so we spent a lot of time together we spent a lot of time driving up and down the country that's what I love about Manchester you know you're asking about the comradeship there's a lot of love and it's it's more so now than ever you are well known to be very committed to maintaining relationships over the years and I know um, you have a reputation that you get back to somebody if they sent you a message no matter when it is, what time it is, you absolutely never leave anyone ghosted <laughs> on a text message, which I, I think I is try amazing. Not to. I try not to, but, you know, there's occasional, and I think, jeez, I've not replied to that email for three months ago. Uh, but, yeah, I do I do try to respect everybody with at least the response to say, I'm sorry, but I can't do that, but great to hear from you. Whatever. But, yeah, I keep in touch, and I respect people. I respect our friendships. And What would you say is important about building bonds and relationships? I think... From my point of view, it's empathy, and that's the first thing is having an empathy with that person that you. Because you don't go into think I'm going to have a relationship with this person, mm -hmm. but you meet someday, you've got common ground. It might be that you 
musicians or you know you're in the creative industries or the PR world or whatever. So the first one is empathy. You can relate to each other and where where you're at, where you're going. Compromise is a big thing as well in relationships, isn't it? Where you know you, you might be on a completely different end of the political spectrum than than I am. I'm not saying mm -hmm. you are or you're not, but I don't know. But that wouldn't matter because we we respect each other for reasons beyond politics. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So I think compromise is one, and that's the same in a marriage or a relationship, isn't it? It's like me and my wife are very, very compatible, and we know that. Um, but sometimes you've got to compromise and take off some of the rough edges. Yeah. I'm talking about me, not my wife. I'm saying that, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's the willingness to change a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. And it's one thing, you know, you, it's it's nice to say, oh, yeah, but that's what I love about my wife and my husband. I've not had to change. But I think generally you do, you know, you do, you do have to try to, to, you know, to make this thing work for decades. Then I might have to cut down on this or try a bit harder at that. So I think uh, empathy, compromise. And the other one is that little, what well, I don't even know what you call it, that little tickle of excitement that you get when you, you're with somebody, when you're in somebody's company. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. that, that feeling of, Reward, you know, it's like this is something I like being with yeah. rather than looking at a clock, looking at time when we'll be over. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's, well, I don't know what the word is for that. It's a little bit of excitement, isn't there, yeah. that, that you're with. You know, I'm always excited when I'm with my wife, you know what I mean? Even when, you know, when, when times are hard or when we're not having a great time, I, I love being with that person and, you know, I love being with those children. I love the people I work with the excess and, you know, it's like... That, that, whatever that word is, that little tickle, yeah. that little bit of um, excitement. I think we're wise for connection, aren't we? I think as humans, yeah. it's important for us to it's all about the people, isn't it? the bigger, yeah. It's all about people, and I think that's what's great about Manchester is it feels like the kind of city where everyone's main concern is the people, and is everybody all right? Are you all right? Absolutely. You know what I mean? And it's like, I know we still have our homeless that we, you know, we can't do a lot about, i.e. me and you, but I think as a city, it's being addressed in a really positive way. Well, generally, it's like if you see somebody on the street not having a great time, you know, if you see somebody crying, you'll, you'll say, you're all right, it's anything I can, yeah. you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's about the people, innit? You've got to value the people all the time. And have you had any um, relationship in terms of, um, obviously, I, I know your relationship with Charlie, but anyone that's really kind of stuck out for you that's been a relationship over a period of time where you've changed, they've changed, but you've still stayed very good friends? A couple of people that I rate as my best friends on the planet, I don't see much of. Mm. You know, one's Graham Maley, who's been in a band called Asia Fields a long time ago. And we met through music, you know, he's in a, in a local band, I recorded his demos for him and we became very close friends. I think his spirits were very, very much aligned. He lives in Spain now. We can go months without talking, but I rate him as being one of my closest friends on the planet. And then a guy called Larry H, tour manager, van driver for rock and roll bands again. I've not spoken to him for probably a year, but I just think that, you know, in, in the afterlife, it'll be me yeah. and him and a few others <laughs> acting the goat, singing Elvis and farting really loudly. <laughs> but um, it's it's funny, and it's like, I think my friendship with Adam Lawler, I mentioned earlier, that we, we're just two people doing our own different things, and we met through a tragic reason, and that's what brought us together. Um, and there's real empathy yeah. in, in, in both directions. You yeah. know, and we're like... In age-wise, God, I'm 42 years older than him. But he's somebody I do value, that that relationship. And I think he does as well, but I know he does. We get, we get on brilliant. We have a laugh, laugh every time we meet each other. And that's a person that needed some strength, and he's getting it from a lot of people. I think I'm one of those people that's given him a bit of a, a bit of something colourful. to You know, he comes yeah. and sits with me on the radio show, chat about 
pretty green, chat about music and life and we eat biscuits and then he goes off and I'll see him again a week or so after. So it's just that helping people out, isn't it, really? Yeah. And um, that's, uh, I think that's a big part of what I'm about, you know. I think people come into your life at certain times for reasons, don't they? And and you, you get so much back from giving to people. And yeah, it's totally, not always yeah, yeah. the person that you meet that becomes a friend that you'd expect. They kind of come in different guises, didn't they? Yeah, I think, I've found that a lot over the over the years. And uh, yeah, it's right. I think Manchester's really open-hearted in that respect, isn't it? So it is, um, absolutely. That's what, what that's the spirit of the city is, that. Yeah. It's giving and it's warm, you know. Talk about Adam and, and, and um, the kind of the young generation. I know you're really committed to giving them a helping hand, um, certainly from a musical point of view as well. You've done a lot, haven't you? Work with a, you're on with BIM in Manchester, yeah. and on um, Storytime, you always play an unsigned artist at the end of the podcast. What do you think is so important about giving back to the next gen? In a musical sense, yeah, that's what people did with me. People helped me right at the beginning. So it's easy for me to remember that. It's easy for me to remember when the first time I got played on BBC Radio Manchester when Phil Corbell played a cassette tape of all things one night or Tony the Greek started playing our records for the first time. And Mike Sweeney has always been a big supporter of mine, a big mentor as well, even in my radio career. Um, but outside of music, look at Manchester, look at all the amazing things it's done, the things it's well known for. You know, the suffragettes didn't do what they did for them. It was for the next generation, the generation after. And, you know, it's making the world better for the next chapter. Really. And you might not be around for that, but it's let's make things better while we're here. And that's one of my big go-to phrases is like, make your little bit of the world a bit better. You know what I mean? Make your corner of the world better than it was when you arrived here. And I think if everybody did that, the world would be magnificent, wasn't it? more magnificent than it is. Absolutely. If everybody just looked after the little bit, made it better, look after the woman next door or the guy next door. I think if everybody lived by that philosophy, everybody around the world, then we won't be in the, the kind of mess that we're in, you know what I mean? It also always says, all of everybody in the world, if all the world leaders get up in the morning and listen to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, the world would be a lot better as well, because you won't fight, you can't <laughs> no. listen to an album like that and then go and Absolutely. Fight. It's, um, it's just not the... It's not the way we. Are, it's not what we are cut from, is it? We're, we come from a much more peaceful and loving place than your average world leader. You know what I mean? Your charity work as well. I mean, yeah. you, you've, you've done. You've raised thousands of pounds over the years for Children's Hospital, um, yeah. Simba, I think. So it, that's something that's obviously really important to you, isn't it? With the charity stuff, I've always done it because I've always thought, you know, I get paid quite well for some of the work I do. You know, especially as a club DJ, you get. Sometimes you look at what they're giving you at the end, and you think all I've done is press play for two hours. Shout Boone Army every five minutes, <laughs> and they are giving me whatever. And it's like, so I, because I get rewarded nicely for some of the work I do, I've always been happy to spend a lot of my time doing some charity stuff as well. So I do a lot of fundraising. But again, it's like I said, the bottom line is, um, you know, if I've got a couple of hours in my day that I'm not needed here or not needed there, and if somebody needs me to go and talk to a load of students at BIM, I'll do it. You know, cause it's like I've got a bit of time there, and if I've got the option of sitting watching loose women on telly or going talking to <laughs> you don't, kids. Do you? <laughs> I'll go I'll go and talk to kids about where life can go if you yeah. step off that little cliff sometimes. It's a bit scary to do some of the things that I've done over the years, but I've seen the benefits of it. So I, I spend a lot of time telling young people to follow the soul, follow your desire. Don't always do what the man tells you to do. If you're loving We Built This City please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform. Thank you. 
So obviously, you know that um, we have the Roland Transfield Way, which yeah. um, changed the culture of our business about 18 months ago. And these are 15 principles by which we want to um, live um, and work uh, professionally and personally. Yeah. And there are 15, and obviously I've given you those to have a look at. I just wonder which one of those kind of resonated with you the most, which was really sprung out to you. When I first looked at the list, um, the first one on the list really got me to start with. And we've got it here, yeah. Sweet the sheds. Yeah, I've got yeah. this everything. So sweet the sheds. <laughs> Be proud to share the responsibility, no matter how small. So I saw that and I thought, that's, that's me, that. Um, not just because I do actually sweep my own shed occasionally <laughs> in real life. Uh, but when I got to the last one, plant trees you'll never see, I just thought that's perfect because that's, you know, me saying, make your bit of the world a bit better. Yeah. It, it's That's not for me, it's for my kids and the next generation of whoever lives in that house or lives in this town or whatever. So that's that's a great saying, plant trees you'll never see. And again, you know, the charity work and everything else, it's like just giving back. So I really like that. That's me, that plant trees you'll never see. I love that. That's my favourite one. Yeah. I totally believe in that. So just a couple of quick fire questions for you. What's your favourite Manchester pub or club? It's got to be South Nightclub. I've DJed there for nearly 19 years every Saturday. There'll never be another place like that for me in terms of somewhere that I go to work and maybe one Saturday a year that I miss. I've done that for nearly 19 years. That's a lot of hours, in it? Shouting Boone Army and pressing play. <laughs> but, um, it's it's a beautiful place and I love the spirit of it. And I've made a lot, I've made a lot of very close friends. Yeah. And um, pine chips or fish and chips? It's funny, isn't it? I, I think I'd always go for pie and chips because I need... I usually get pine chips because... If I need some food quick, I need a bit of stodge. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't think, oh, just fancy pie and chips. You think, I'm on the move, I'm hungry, I've got to go and see Lisa for this podcast, so what can I eat quick? Pie and chips. Fish and chips is a bit more exotic and probably not as big on the carbs, is it? I don't know. But you had pie and chips before you came in here? I haven't done, no. I had a, a, a some sort of a muffin, like a breakfast muffin with... I think they were probably... It's a balm cake, they don't cherries. call it muffins. No, they call it a muffin, not like a breakfast muffin. Right. Like an American, oh, yeah. yeah. What's your most used Manchester expression? Uh, I've always used buzzing. I mean, even back in the, the 90s when these virals were touring a lot, early 90s, it was all, oh, you're right, yeah, I'm buzzing. And the other one that you don't hear anymore is vibing. Back then it was like, oh, I'm vibing, man. Yeah, I'm vibing, yeah. I think buzzing's good and buzzing, yeah. Buzzing. And what would you say is the best view of Manchester? What do you, what do you see that embodies Manchester? That's a good one, that. I've got... I love the way the skyline's changing, but the other day I was driving in through the bottom end of uh, Oldham Road to coming towards the city centre, past Miles Platin, and then coming along Oldham Street. And the landscape, or the cityscape from that part of town hasn't changed. You can't see any of the skyscrapers. Right. So if you're looking from, if you've got your back to the Daily Express building, is it still called that? I think it's an Express building. Yeah. And looking down Oldham Street, and you can just see the the, the tower in Piccadilly, um, you might be able to see the end of Ethan Tower, but it's like that view hasn't changed. So even though I like the development that's happening around the city, that really reminded me of how Manchester looked back in the 80s and 90s, because you can't see any skyscrapers. I was driving in recently down uh, Ide Road, so from Ashton towards Manchester, and that view a year ago, two years ago, was really beautiful, and the Beetham Tower in the middle from the side but now you can't even see the Beetham Tower because mm. of the, the high-rise building. So that's changed just changed so completely. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for... 
I'm going to go for that Oldham Street looking down towards yeah. Piccadilly at the moment. OK. And when you're away from Manchester, what do you miss most about it? What do you think about? I think about the vibe of the city, you know, the atmosphere, the ambience of the city centre uh, and the people, you know, not just not particular people that I know, but just the, the kind of people that, that are here and the aesthetics as well, really. I mean, I, mind you, when I think about that now, when I'm thinking about my beautiful Manchester now, I'm not seeing the high-rise buildings in my idyllic view in my head. Mm. It's still Manchester of probably 10 years ago. You know, you've got your GMX, you've got your Beetham. But, yeah, in terms of what, what I'd miss, it's the vibe, the ambience and the people. Mm. Would you ever leave Manchester? I think I'd leave in maybe for work, if it, you know, if it was essential, maybe for family reasons, if it became a thing, or for health reasons. But I've no intention of leaving. And I think even if I left... If I left in body, I'd never leave in spirit, you know. But I'm, I'm 60 now and I don't see any reason why I'll ever have to leave, really. I think this is it, hopefully, for me. Mm. But like I say, you know, if, if my me, me wife needed to go abroad for something, then I'd happily go and support her with that if, if it ever became a thing. But We so, don't. We hope you don't leave. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going <laughs> no. anywhere, Lisa. I think I'm staying here. Don't, don't call me an Uber just yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> and lastly, obviously, this city loves you, you love the city. Is there anything you'd like to say... Um, you know, to a city that's that's got such a big place in its heart for you. It's hard to say. I was thinking about this on the training. But I'd just say, keep on being unique because we're not like any other city. So keep on being unique and just keep on being you. Just keep on being Manchester, really. Uh, that's that's it. I'm not going to come out with anything profound like a, talking to me lover. <laughs> just keep on whatever you're doing, whatever we are doing, just keep doing that. Yeah. And it is. It's like a collective thing, isn't it? So it's like a massive... A massive people, you know, some of them in various industries are keeping things moving in the, that amazing direction. But then it, as a community of people that are, you know, just working class people doing what they do, it's all working, isn't it? There's something happening and it's going to carry on happening and yeah, don't change it. Keep on being unique. Amazing. Clint, thanks so much for coming in today to talk to me. I've really enjoyed it and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the kind of the next chapter is for you too. So come back in a year and, and tell us then. That's been great, Lisa. Thanks, thanks, Clint. Thank you. Every time I speak to Clint, he always makes me laugh. The bit for me there, I think, that stood out was the fact that he believes if we all look after our own corner of the world, the world's a better place for everyone. And I really think that that resonates now more than ever with all of us. I decided that because the world has turned since we did this podcast, um, it would be a good idea to catch up with Clint. So we did that today on Squadcast and he sat in his kitchen with his gorgeous dog, Dolly, and I sat in my bedroom with my head in the knicker drawer with a microphone, which apparently gives the best sound. Um, so we had a catch up and we found out what lockdown was like for him. And he was also able to share some amazing news with us. So here we go. Hiya, Clint. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Lisa. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I think things have changed a bit since we last spoke. Yeah, things have changed. It's quite a surreal uh, time, isn't it, really? So when we last spoke, you were talking about maybe your soul was going in a different direction and you had a couple of other ideas. How How's that for you at the moment? Has this changed anything? I think so. I mean, um, I, I think I've had a chance to reevaluate a lot of things and... When I spoke to you for the podcast, obviously there was a bit of uncertainty about the future of XS Manchester. Um, and the latest news is that that's going to carry on as normal now. So that's um, business as usual um, for the, for the, the, you know, until 
until further notice. So the rest of the year, at least, it's uh, it's all safe. So that, that's great. You know, it's um, it's a job that I've enjoyed doing for three years, working with XS, and before that, working at Radio X and XFM. Um, so it's become my day job, if you like. And when I heard that it was potentially going to disappear back in December, it was quite scary. But it threw me into a new world that I talked about in the podcast about getting out there and doing more creative stuff. Um, but what I've decided, you know, since even in the last 24 hours or so, since I found out that XS is uh, carrying on, I'm still going to pursue all that that other world of creative energy that I've got, you know, the, the, the music, the art. I've started doing my cow pictures and people are going mad for them online. And it's not only is it bringing in a little income stream for the family, it's giving people a lot of joy, these little cowograms that I've started doing. I've been sending them out to uh, ambulance stations and district nurses and little free ones with like little pick-me-ups. But, you know, it's like I've always been a bit arty and the idea that I can just spend an hour or two in my studio at home drawing cows and colouring them in and it pays a few bills, you know what I mean? So that, what I'm saying is, um, even though the radio thing's carrying on, I still intend to be this creative hurricane because I can't stop creating, and I feel more creative than I've ever felt, really, in terms of you know with the music as well as everything else. So I, I like the idea of you know taking the radio station up a notch and getting it into an even higher gear than we're in anyway. You know we were already set to become Manchester's greatest radio station ever, undoubtedly. You know. And, I like the idea that we can uh, start taking that up a notch, you know, with or without the budget. So we, we were never a big budget radio station excess. We're quite a quite a small entity, really, compared to like Smooth and Heart and people like that. But the idea that um, we can start taking up a notch, especially with all the positivity that's coming in because of what's been happening. Hello. You know, we're all broadcasting from home at the moment, the, the presenters. Excuse me, I'm just going to let my dog out. How times have changed. It's like I'm doing my radio show and like the little Cassius is coming in saying, Can can I have some Nutella on toast? You know, like in the middle of a, a link. And it's just that that's the real world, and that's what it's all about. Know, it's in a way it's so much nicer though, isn't it? As well, you know. It's reality, isn't it? And it's like you know, I've been doing my show on sneezing and coughing and like I don't know if I've had the virus or not, but last week I was really wheezy and uh, we think my wife Charlie had it. She's recovered now, but it's a strange period, isn't it? And the maddest thing is that it's like two months ago, five weeks ago, we heard about this virus, but none of us saw this coming. Absolutely. And it's like just um, just the most surreal thing that I've ever experienced, I think, in, in my life, you know. Um, and there's positives in it, you know, getting a few jobs done on the house. The funny one is this, so I've got... Um, a flock of crows trying to nest in me, my loft at the moment. So I've got this battle going on. They were all born here last year, right? So they nested in the, in the, the loft last year. And we thought it was dead cute at the time because this family of animals was sharing our house with us and you could hear them making the nest and, you know, laying the chicks and you could hear the chicks hatching and flying off. And, oh, isn't it nice, that? But this year, they created that much structural damage last year that we've had. We've now got damp in the house because they damaged the gutter to get into the eaves to... So anyway, these seven beautiful crows that are now a year old, I assume, are coming back to nest because they come back year after year. That's what crows do. I think probably a lot of birds do. And they're doing the best to get back into the house to make a nest, and they'll start laying eggs at the end of April, early May. So we've got all this, all through the night, these beaks <laughs> chopping away at the wood because they're too big to get in the hole. So I've got this ongoing battle with the crows. I'm trying to keep them out. I mean, I know you've got to be careful. You, you know, 
I don't want to be cruel to them, but I'm just trying my best to stop them coming into nests because it's the noise through the night, but the damp that they cause in the house and structural damage is like, it's unbearable, you know what I mean? So, Come on, Dolly, get back in. There you go. What about homeschooling is not going to be an issue like it is for lots and lots of parents because everyone's moaning about having the kids and having to do stuff. So you're, you're, you're all okay with that, aren't you? How's it going? It's business as usual. Yeah, it's like because yeah. we've got three boys, as, as I've told you about, and they're used to living with each other and the, the best friends with each other. And uh, All right, Dolly, we'll feed you in a minute. Uh, and they're all into the music as well, so there's a lot of music in the house and it's good quality music that they're listening to. Can you hear me all right above the dog? We can, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I might have to phone my wife and tell them to get it's a bit ad hoc. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit of a shock to the system for us adults. I mean, I, I can feel my legs, like, withering away because I'm not walking all the time. I'm always on my feet, man. I'm always running to one place yeah. or another, whether it's a DJ gig, going into work, you know, to the radio station. And I can actually feel my legs getting weaker, you know what I mean? Because we're not going anywhere. We're walking around the block Low every legs. day. Yeah. Um, I did it. I'll tell you what I did the other day that's interesting. I did a, a live DJ set from my studio at home and streamed it. And that was very successful. I mean, again, partly for the fun and the interaction, but another income stream, you know what I'm saying, if, if, if need be. Um, so that was very successful and it was fun. And Charlie Olme, she was my producer, if you like, she was getting all the requests off the, uh, the Twitter and all that. She's here, but I'm not going to turn the camera around because she's dressed only in a towel. <laughs> Well, it's Lisa. Both people are at the moment, though, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I was saying before about Charlie, the last three days, there's been a point in the afternoon where she said to me, are you planning on having a shower today? <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Again, it's a strange time to live in, isn't it? <clears throat> so, and you're very kindly put together a Spotify playlist for us for the best Manchester tunes, so we can all enjoy that in our, do our proper Mancunian kitchen discos then for the next yeah, few weeks. That'll keep absolutely. us going. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think at the moment, kind of in terms of, well, obviously we talked on the podcast about Mancunian spirit. I mean, do you think there's anything special that will stand out about Mancunians now, kind of get through that? Have you seen any kind of major um, kind of campaigns or gestures by Manchester at the moment? That's, I've not really thought about that. I mean, I'm seeing human gestures you know, around the world, like the... the People singing in Italy two, two weeks ago from the balconies and people clapping over here for the NHS for the night. It was beautiful. I mean, we went out onto the balcony out here and there's fireworks going off and everything, which is gorgeous. Yeah. But I don't think that was particularly Mancunian. I think that was just a British moment, wasn't it? Um, and I think because I've not been out on the streets of Manchester, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to see what's going on, really. So I, I see it as incredibly unifying you know, it's not just about Manchester, it's not just about the British, it's about the world, isn't it now? Which is, again, the first time in my life that I've experienced anything like that, where you feel commonality with everybody on the planet. Uh, and it's like one of them science fiction films, isn't it, where the aliens are coming to get us. What's it called? I don't even know, they're all the same, aren't they? End of the world. Yeah. And uh, But it's like that, where just everybody's coming together in a nice way, and there's been no talk about tourism, also for a few weeks as well. It's like everybody's... Totally. Con brilliant. Concentrate on other things now. I went State. to. Um, I had to go. So John Thompson was on uh, the podcast and um, last week, and I had to go to his house and take the We Built the City sign. And um, 
we were having a chat at arm's length and he was saying to me that he just thought it was brilliant in the way that everyone was going back to, to traditional values because he said he'd lent um, jump leads. He said there's a WhatsApp group, so they're swapping, they're borrowing, lending each other eggs, sugar. And yeah. he said and everyone in the streets talking to each other. So I think that's a really important, you know, we can see that all over the place now. And that'll carry on afterwards, that when it's all gone, yeah. people will, there'll be a few things that'll change. Businesses will start working differently because they'll realise that you can actually have your staff working at home keeps the overheads down it's you know it's better for some families to be working at home um i think people have more respect and tolerance for each other after this um and yeah they'll communicate more and they might start writing letters and sending cowograms out yes <laughs> brilliant yeah oh, so um, but yeah if you want to have a look at me uh, my online shop it's uh it's on etsy the boot army store uh, you can get cow canvases, cow greeting cards and cow grams. It's all about cows. It's all I can do, really. Can't draw anything else. <laughs> right, well, I'm straight on there after this. <laughs> right, brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I hope everything's okay. I'm going to look forward to listening to the uh, Spotify playlist this Fantastic. Week. And uh, keep up the great work, Lisa. So lockdown seems to be going well for Mr Boone. He's got some crow problems, but he's doing some cow paintings. And he's also announced that he's back on drive time on Excess Manchester's continuing, so we're going to hear lots more of him over the coming months, which is absolutely brilliant news. On the next episode of We Built This City, we have Sasha Lord, Greater Manchester's first ever nighttime czar, music entrepreneur behind The Warehouse Project and Park Life. We're really lucky to operate in Greater Manchester because it's the people that make the party. You can go all over the world and there's something about Manx. We've always had this swagger and we're up for a party. This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years, 0161 236 1122.